what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast, episode number 23. I'm your host Mike and today I have an absolutely awesome episode and conversation to share with you with a first time guest called Matt Sergio. Now somebody sent me across one of Matt's videos about a month ago and it was on the Bloomsbury Group. Now I was immediately impressed with the work of Matt who has done an awful lot of research into the development of the counterculture in the 1950s and the 1960s but especially the rise of the Beatles or the occult Beatles as I maybe should call them. Now for me I think this is one of the most important puzzle pieces for us all to uncover in our own journey towards discovering just how this was done to us, just how we got to where we are today and how a bunch of spooks and psychoanalysts and psychologists have been used to shape the mass mind. Because this is how the spell was cast, everyone, and it's been going on now for almost a century. Now, this is really controversial work that Matt's doing because it requires all of us to come to terms with the fact that almost certainly the things we enjoyed growing up, the music we listened to, the films that we watched, were being weaponized against us and actually used to control our minds. They were being used to indoctrinate us and to take us along this path that has led us to exactly where we are today. So what we're going to find out in tonight's episode is that the counterculture and all of these different rebellious scenes, not a single one of them was actually organically occurring. And if it was, then it would have immediately have been taken over by these same people. Now, of course, in 2020, we actually saw just how sophisticated those at the top have gotten when it comes to mass mind control. And it's really amazing because if you went back to their grandparents' generation, you'd find that they lived completely differently. You know, back then when my grandparents were young, you met somebody when you was 18 or 19, you got married. In fact, I even remember when I was younger, when people lived in terraced houses. So we're talking these tiny little houses in terraced blocks. It was so important that you went outside your house each day and swept your stairs that led to your house, your porch as we called it. And it's even the same in Poland. I was told by my wife that growing up people were absolutely terrified that their neighbours would see they had a dirty front door so they'd wash their front doors all of the time. This is the old world. This is how people used to live when they had principles, morals, values. This was a different world where men and women actually had relationships. They saw themselves as a team, not as enemies, which is the case today. And if you think about what happened, we had these two world wars and those two world wars were 
a sort of mass trauma on the working and middle classes, but especially the working classes. Then after that, we had this period of real growth in terms of media. Now that's how it was done. We had these two mega wars that completely decimated the old world. And a lot of the Christian values and ethics that people used to have were then very quickly eroded. Now, how did all of that happen? How did we fall so far? Well, that is what tonight's episode is all about. And that's what Matt's here to talk about. He's going to deliver his findings on groups like the Beatles and on the counterculture. Now, it looks like going into the end of this year, they may be trying another big push at taking us back to lockdowns, trying to make people mask themselves up in public and ultimately, of course, giving them another round of the poison injection. So I think this episode is very timely because when you watch these people do this, when you see people falling for it again, this episode will help you understand how they managed to get us here, how they took us to this really low rung of consciousness. But make no mistake, this is actually a really fun episode. It's a fantastic conversation, actually. We get into all kinds of things like the Tavistock Clinic, MK Ultra, And then in part two, we go into some of the really shadowy characters that were involved in this story. And there's a fantastic conversation all about Yoko Ono, who, in my opinion, thinks she was an occult witch. And I think she was being used to control the mind of Lennon. And Matt really draws that out in part two. So this is an episode that really builds and builds as it goes along. And I had such a fantastic time going down these rabbit holes with Matt. So I'm hoping to have Matt back on the show in the future. So if you enjoy part one, and I'm sure you're going to because it's one of my favorite conversations thus far, then you're going to love part two because it actually expands even further and we get into some of the very strange characters and we take this also to the death of John Lennon too. So we talk about what that signified. Why did they get rid of John Lennon? So, so much to unpack in this one. I think that's enough for the introduction. If you enjoy part one, please come over to parallelmike.com where you can become a member and listen to part two of this and each and every episode. You can also access the members only forums where we are now talking about episodes. So they have just opened up. So I look forward to seeing the members over there to discuss this one. For everybody else, I wish you all good health and happiness. And of course, I'll see you in the next one. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. I've got a fantastic guest to share with you today. It's Matt Sergio who runs the website, The Occult Beatles, and also the Conspiro TV YouTube channel. Matt, you were, well, I was actually shown one of your videos by a member of my community for the Parallel Systems broadcast, which is my other show. And I was blown away by the research that you was doing. And I this is a topic that I've been wanting to get into with somebody for a long time. But I wanted somebody who was more knowledgeable on it than myself. And I think you are that person. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. How are things going today? Good, good. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me along. And I don't know if I'm the uttermost expert you can find on the, these kind of things. But um, yeah, I mean, certainly what the video looks into what is one of the central themes is the 60s counterculture. But I'm looking at it from a British perspective. And certainly... Um, from what I've seen over the years, since I've been getting into this particular realm of research since 2016, is there is not a lot with regards to the uh, counterculture, or as it's preferred to be called by people who were there at the time, so I'm told, the underground culture. So the, the late 60s counterculture, if you like, of the 1960s, there's a lot 
said about it and a lot film there's a lot of films and documentaries and books about the US counterculture but nowhere near as much about it when it comes to the UK and in London in particular where it was all happening uh, and especially within the alternative realms of research um there isn't a lot there either so yeah that's what i i look at so if i am an expert it's only because nobody else seems to be doing it so it's like a small fish in a big pond or or was it the other way around isn't it a big fish in a small pond that's it yeah yeah that, the that's thing the one is, though, with this matt <laughs> it's such an integral part of the puzzle for understanding how they managed to take us to where we are today which is this really low rung of the ladder where we've got you know, the debasement of morals across society and this normalization of what I think is essentially satanic ideology. Uh, but if you don't understand how we got there, it's actually very hard to understand what's going on today. And I think this is the key part of it. But like you said, there's so few people that actually have done this research. And I think a big part of that is because it requires us to reanalyze our entire understanding of our own lives and our childhood and our music which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit because like you uh, I'm pretty sure we were similar that we probably both grew up loving this kind of music I, I was into the punk scene uh, and since I found out a lot of this stuff I've had to really reanalyze my my whole kind of belief structure around what my childhood was about yeah I mean I, I don't know too much about the punk scene um, but certainly I've looked I've I've traveled into that area by accident because having looked at the 1960s counterculture scene the underground scene of london it has connections to punk a lot of the people that were in in the the movers and the shakers of the punk scene in london like malcolm mclaren for example came from this 1960s late 60s countercultural um environment okay um i'm not well clued up on malcolm mclaren and his life and career but I'm hazarding a guess he wasn't a long-haired hippie with flowers in his hair back in the day, back in the 60s. But certainly he was in the countercultural mix, if you like, in London. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of groups like King Mob, which is a particular um, movement that was around at the, in the late 60s, which was a countercultural movement, which certainly I think, if I'm not mistaken, was a, a massive influence uh on on the punk scene so yeah you it, it, and 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 if you want to talk about the 1960s um from both a us and uk perspective and the way that we live our lives today you have the 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 eastern eastern mysticism quote unquote which is very popular today you know meditation yoga um, transcendental meditation, um, TM, as it's otherwise known for short. Um, it could be argued, and indeed many people have stated uh, unequivocally, that it was thanks to the Beatles that this became popular in the West. Um, thanks to George Harrison, mainly, who was in the band, who really uh, took it to his heart and made it a part of his life. So that's just one aspect. Uh, also, when you look at uh, the what was then maybe called the ecology movement now we have climate change and and all the agendas attached to that certainly that was going on in the 60s as well the transgender movement which began uh, which has its roots in the feminist movement that was very powerful a very powerful movement in the 60s especially in the uk with the likes of uh jermaine greer although i'm not good i'm not um attaching blame to jermaine greer at all i'm just stating that she was one of the movers and shakers the biggest names in the media, in the mainstream media in the 60s. Uh, there's also, um, there's the CIA lady, isn't there, from America, whose name has completely escaped me, who it's late, who it's turned out in more recent years was CIA. Um, her name is gone. It will come to me anyway, uh, uh, um, an American feminist. 
Um, and then when you look at the internet, there was this network of people in the late 1960s who were, there, there was, in the, in the late 1960s, there was um, a move towards getting out of the city, getting out of the town. And this is amongst the hippie community, if you like. There was this move, this trend, if you like, in the late 1960s for the hippies, if for want of a better term, who wanted to get out of um, organized society and move into the countryside. And of course, this would have been easier in the in the US where, you know, the US is more expansive. So you've got more opportunity to do that. And um because they were doing this, they need what they wanted to do is they wanted to be able to communicate with each other, to share information. So if they're out there in the wilds of America, say, or even in the rural parts of Britain, and they needed to sustain themselves without the need for the grid, um, they needed to to learn how to do this. And, and, and one way of learning how to do this was to swap information. And of course, there was no Internet then. So uh, n- not on a, you know, on a, on a mass scale. Um, so uh, it wasn't a, a major thing in our lives. Um, so what they had to do was find another way of communicating this. And one way they did it was through magazines. Like uh, there's one called the Whole Earth Catalogue, and it's a U.S. magazine. I think it still runs to this day. But basically what it was, it was an Internet forum in a magazine form. So it was the Internet chat forums before we had Internet chat forums so people would swap their ideas that way and from the whole earth catalog came this idea to to you know this was like a germ of an idea that then helped bring along the internet in later years so when you do look to the 60s we certainly do in my view certainly are living in the effects of that decade you know in the space of 10 years so much happened that we're now living in the uh throes of if you like yes certainly I think so, Matt. I, the way that I view it, actually, is that from the start of the 20th century, there was this great plan to essentially reset society and take us from this Victorian era towards where we are now. But to do that, they had to destroy this old world. We had two world wars. We had communism, uh, fascism. We had all of these different experiments. And then from the ashes of all that, we had this really unexpected and probably you know it's not a normal reaction to what happened let's say in the 1940s that we then had this huge wave of music and these sexual revolutions and the complete opposite of what was happening in the decades prior when it was all about judeo-christian ethics and morality and family values you know it's not a normal progression so there had to be some engineering and i think what your research shows us is that it was all engineered and where we are today was by design and there's so much evidence for it. So I think where it might be a great place to actually start on this one is to actually discuss the Beatles, because I know that you've done a lot of research on this. And I think in the story of the Beatles, it draws out all of that, it, you know, and there's so many characters that come into the fold that were working with intelligence or with the Frank Fett School <laughs> and all these different people. Yeah. So maybe we could start with that, because essentially the way we're told the Beatles came to be is that it was this kind of spontaneous a revolution by the youth and we all started to then get involved in rock and roll and we started to rebel against our parents but it's really not the case is it Matt? Yes this is um, yeah this is the million dollar question I suppose that's the way I envisage it in my head I don't know if that's how you pitted it or pitched it to me but it, to me it's the million dollar question uh, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain there are people listening to this and certainly researchers and writers and and narrators who uh, who say yes 
that, that they do have the answer to this million dollar question. I don't, but certainly others will say, yes, the Beatles were a Tavistock uh, Institute controlled and uh, um, engineered and, and created, if you like, group. I'm not completely in with that. Um, incidentally, I've just remembered the name of the woman I was thinking of. It's Gloria Steinem. That was the woman I was trying to think of, the CIA um, paid for um, uh, feminist in in America. Um, so the million, so it's a million dollar question for me. And the question is, for me, is were the Beatles willing participants in a social engineering agenda in the 1960s? Or were they unwitting um, instruments in it? And if they were or they weren't, were they created by a body such as the Tavistock Institute? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to say what I think. And I think I don't know. I really honestly don't know. The way that I present my work is I like to see myself more as a reporter. Uh, I know there's a lot of researchers out there, especially within the world of the Beatles who look into this kind of thing, that have a set idea they 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 know where they're going with their research and they use they have the evidence in front of them and they present the evidence to say look here you see what i mean this is why i think a b or c i'm not off okay i do have an agenda with with if if that's the word to use with regards to my websites to do with the beatles and podcasts and videos and what have you yes i'm looking at it from an alternative angle but that's all. That's as far as I go with it. I all I do is, is I present any information that I have within the alternative um, angle, within that angle, and then leave the reader or the listener or the viewer to make up their own mind. So for for me, it's the million dollar question: Were they part of a social engineering agenda? Certainly, I will say I don't know. But at the same time, I'll also say, and as you see in the video that you're talking about, this Bloomsbury video that I have on my channel, Conspiro TV, that there are many, many people connected to the Beatles, either all or all or some of them who have very weird connections uh, to, to military or not weird connections, but connections to military or intelligence uh, so-called elite quote-unquote families blue bloods royalty you name it there there, there there's many um uh, examples of that where you want me to go with this now let me know and i'll, I'll, I'll kind of take you there you well, know i think a lot of this mac also comes from the book and um, the committee of 300 where coleman actually said that the beatles were a tavistockian construct and that book has become really popular in alternative research circles because so much of what Coleman said did come true and therefore I guess it adds a lot of weight to the idea that be the Beatles were a Tavistockian construct and I, I mean I, I'll put myself out there and say personally I think absolutely I, I actually think all media tv music has all been heavily infiltrated and has been uh, since the very beginning and you know I do a lot of research in into kind of the period let's say from the like 11th century to the 14th, 15th century. And even back then, you know, all of the artists, all of the philosophers, all of the scientists were infiltrated by the merchant banking clans. And if anybody kind of went against the agenda, the like Dante, for example, he wrote his Inferno where he put the bankers in the lowest realm of hell where they were getting sodomized and he got whacked. He, dis you know, he was disappeared because the bankers didn't like that. So I I'm personally more towards that side of things but let's let, let's get into it let's talk about some of these very strange let's say quirks of the beatles you know there's all kinds of connections to people like alistair crowley and 
you know, Yoko Ono, she's got an interesting past. So let's take it to the Beatles and maybe begin by how much of the rise of the Beatles was engineered? Like, like, what do we know about that? Because there's all these stories that they were, the media was, for example, completely artificially inflating the numbers of fans there or were putting on all kinds of scripted events. So maybe that is a good place to start, Matt, and I'll hand it back to you. Okay. Um, yes. Well, I'll just I'll just uh, agree with you with in part what you said there, or, or the the majority of it. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I'm not saying here that I don't believe in conspiracy. Gosh, no, far from it. If anyone's thinking that, no, no, no. I'm just saying that I'm not exactly sure how the Beatles are intertwined in this conspiracy. They're certainly kind of they are they're they're in that mix. They're definitely part of something, but how and to what extent and is what what I'm I'm you know um still wondering i think that's um, a healthy but... pr- approach though matt because that actually gives us a, a healthy bit of skepticism too to go through this episode with that actually maybe the beatles themselves had no idea what they was or where they were going with it and um, and i think i'll take the more um let's say liberal view on this one and then that'll kind of piece it together so i think that's a good healthy approach that like you're going to be a bit okay, more okay well and i'm going to be a bit more conspiratorial well okay you say that but i'm going to throw a weird one at you or a, a left field one and say maybe they were mind controlled maybe they were mk ultraed and maybe that's why they don't know there's certainly evidence if you like that that was possibly a case i've talked in previous podcasts uh, about John Lennon possibly being mind controlled by one or two or more handlers, including Yoko Ono. So, you know, uh, also Paul McCartney. But um, yes, yeah, so where do you want me to go? All ah, right. Yes. Yeah. Nine, let's let's look to 1964. If you want to talk about um, engineered mania stories in the press, uh, if you look to 1964, when the Beatles landed in America, the British invasion, as it was called, when you know, because up until that time, American culture, uh, especially music, was was ruling the roost when it came to pop music. You know what the young were listening to in Britain and across Europe. It was American music ruled the day. You know, up until the Beatles went to America in '64, the charts in Britain were mainly American were were, ma- were made of American made pop music. The rock and roll um, craze, Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, uh, and on and on we go were all Americans. They all came from America. The British music scene in terms of pop was absolute crap you know it, it was rubbish and 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 the few that did make hits in the uk that, i mean i'm not saying that there weren't any but the few that did were on the whole pastiching or um lending their style to the american style so it's it was british people trying to be american basically you look at cliff richard oh yeah you could look at cliff richard that, that's a program in itself isn't it and uh, yeah, his his um yeah his uh, activities or uh, alleged activities or whatever. But um yeah, so the Beatles were seen as this new the vanguard of this new movement. Bands that were uh, such as the Rolling Stones, uh, although not so much in the earlier days of the Stones, because when they started they were bis- basically mimicking blues music. So they were still very much American based. It wasn't until a few years later that they started to put more English elements into their songs. But yeah, the Kinks, the Who, there was this English kind of vibe and style and the Beatles were at the vanguard of this with this British invasion to America bringing British music British style music to to America and the the, what we always see in the footage is we see the Beatles landing at at JFK airport and thousands or 
it seems as though it's thousands and thousands of fans turning up on the balcony of the, the airport and, and, and greeting the Beatles as they're walking down the steps from the aeroplane. Now, it's since turned out that a lot of those uh, kids that turned up were actually kind of paid to be there. Um, I've heard stories from kind of official sources, people who were there at the time who've since said that I don't know the exact um, the exact details, but a, a busload or a couple of busloads of uh, American kids were effectively bussed there and given money or they were given like Beatle records or posters or memorabilia. I'm not sure, but they were given some kind of pay, if you, if you know what I mean, some kind of reward to turn up and to stand on this balcony and scream. Now, there was a film that came out a few years back. It was called Eight Days a Week. It was kind of like this really, personally speaking, I think rather boring, awful documentary um sort of yeah uh it was by uh ron howard is that the guy who was in happy days the director ron howard is that his yeah name? yeah he actually went on to have a quite a start um, career as a director in film as well i think so you know he's been well a part of the hollywood establishment for a long time ron yeah he has yeah i think he was the director of this film and basically it tells the story of the beatles touring years from 64 i think to 66 which is a bit weird i'm not going to go too much off on a tangent but the beatles were touring since 62 63 but it was kind of taken from an american perspective which i think anyway anyway in this in the dvd extras of this and it's been a while since i watched it i do have it but it's been a while since i watched it but there's an interview with one of the girls that was who turned up to that balcony to scream and she talks and i'm if i'm getting this wrong it's because my memory's maybe playing tricks with me but from what i can remember what she's basically saying is that she had a meeting with the beatles manager brian epstein either on on the phone or in america prior to the beatles turning up in order to discuss how she and her friends could come to this balcony at the airport at jfk at jfk and to greet the beatles she he was basically asking her how she could bring her friends along and uh, and there was an agreement made basically about bringing a load of people to to the airport so yeah i mean and, and i know that some people uh, some researchers have looked at some of the footage of some of the other scenes of beatlemania and said, what are we actually seeing here? Here we have a picture of the Beatles turning up to theatre and we see a crowd of people greeting them, being pushed back by the police. But how real is that? If if we were to pull the photograph or the photographer back a, a few steps, would there be any people away from the photo frame? Or are they are these just like 40 or 50 people that have been crammed into one area and then they've had the, the photographer just take the picture, make it look like there's thousands of people turning up? That's a, that's a, another idea that's been thrown out there if you look on various uh, groups, you know, internet groups and, and what have you. But yeah, sure, that the American thing was a, was kind of kind of a construct, yeah. And it from that, you can argue because... Sorry for interrupting, Matt. I was just going to say, okay. it's important to understand as well that this was something that we'd never seen before, wasn't it? Like we had this, yeah. for the first time, this mass media, and then this hysteria where you had all of these uh, usually young teenage uh probably early teen girls just like losing their mind and you know like really hysterical sometimes supposedly fainting there was ambulances outside and you know no one had ever seen anything like that i mean i guess elvis was the first wave of all of that maybe elvis and little john and that kind of era but then it kind of came to the yeah there was also johnny ray as well yeah there was the 50s singer johnny ray apparently he 
prior to the Beatles, he had this going on. And Frank Sinatra as well, um, the Bobby Soxers, his fans back in the day, because many people might regard Frank Sinatra as being this old crooner, but he was he was a teen pop star back in the 40s. He was like a young man and the girls were wetting the seats, you know, and they, his fans were called Bobby Soxers. And yeah, was this, this was going... Then, Matt? Do you think that they actually... I mean, I, I can only imagine that the record labels would have loved to orchestrate that, but do you think there's evidence to show that they orchestrated I it? don't know. Um, okay, I'll, I'll throw this one at you, see what you think. With regards to the Beatles, there's another documentary I've seen, and again, it's like a... a fish, it's, it's same as the Eight Days a Week. It's a quote-unquote officially sanctioned documentary, if you like. It's In other words, it's been made with the input of one or more of the ex-Beatles and their inner insiders. And uh, it's a BBC documentary that came out a few years ago about George Martin, their record producer, Jesuit schooled uh, George Martin, incidentally. Um, And there's a piece in the it's talking. Basically, it's a documentary about George Martin and his life. So it talks about his earlier years in the in the uh, uh, air fleet arm. Uh, working in the Navy um, during the war. And then when he left and went to work at EMI and, and who he worked with and, and, and all the rest of that. Now during, uh, there's also contributions from uh, McCartney and also Ringo, I think Um, now, and I don't, and, and I've got to say, there, this, this, there's a segment in the documentary which is just is, is is in there, and it just makes when you look at it as a whole, you just think, yeah, it's interesting, it's definitely interesting, but it actually has no relevance to the theme of the program. We're talking about George Martin's life, and we and and it's it's focusing in on, on his years with the Beatles, and of all the aspects within his years with the Beatles, they one of the things they focus in on is this particular thing, and like I say, it doesn't fit. Basically, we see a scene where Paul and McCartney and George Martin are sitting in the studio. Presumably, it's Abbey Road uh, in London. Uh, they're, they're at the mixing desk and they're, they're talking about their memories of the 60s. Oh, you know, hey, George, do you remember when we did this and all this, this kind of thing? And and I can't again, I'm paraphrasing here, so do forgive me. But from memory, from what I can remember, Paul and George are chatting away quite informally. And Paul says something like, hey, George, do you remember when you used to, he says, what I used to love about the old days was in between the recording, we'd sit down with a cup of tea and a cigarette and and talk and have like informal chats. And and George was like an uncle to us because he was a lot older than the rest of the Beatles. He was in his 30s. They were in their early 20s, late teens when they first went to EMI Studios. And um, we used to talk and, and whatever. I said, hey, George, do you remember? Do you remember talking about sound frequencies? And and they, he started talking about sound frequencies. And George Martin wasn't saying much. It was Paul that was doing most of the talking. But basically what he was saying, what he explained was that George Martin had explained to the Beatles back in the studio that sound frequencies could be used um, to to influence a crowd of people to make them behave at the will of the person controlling the frequencies and paul was say, was talking about this saying if you turn he, he 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 what he did basically he said he remembers george martin talking to the beatles back in the day about how adolf hitler used sound frequencies in front of his at his rallies where thousands and thousands of people would turn up to see hitler this was in the pre-war years i'm guessing when his popularity was was at its ultimate peak i suppose 
Um, and he would turn up to these rallies. And what George Martin was saying to Paul and the Beatles back in the 60s was you could, with the aid of a, a sound frequency, what what that, what Hitler's people would do before Hitler got to the got to the podium they would turn the sound frequency up so so high that you, you couldn't actually hear the sound frequency the crowd couldn't hear it but what it would do to their nervous system and to their bodies physically is it would make them feel physically sick it would make them feel ill like they were going to throw up give them headaches the rest of it but they wouldn't know why the, the crowd wouldn't know why because they couldn't hear it all they could do was feel this sound frequency and then as soon as hitler came on onto the podium the sound level would be turned right down to the lowest 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 bass level and this would cause a, a feeling of elation amongst the crowd and it would make them feel happy and it would make them and they would see and so so you mix that with them seeing hitler on the podium with his his ability for drama um and it would make them excited it would make them excitable it would make them almost like beatles fans if you like so although they didn't say it in the documentary i did wonder because many many people over the years and i'm talking about psychologists sociologists have tried to work out what is it about the beatles that made fans scream what was it that made them do this um, I, I spoke to an author a few years back who did a wrote a book about the Beatles, a mainstream book. And he was and, and the book he wrote one book and it was called I Was There. And it was about the Beatles and it was about the Beatles performing live in concert. And it was basically the story of the Beatles during their touring years, but told from the perspective of fans who went to the concerts. And I said to him, I asked him, did, did you get any feeling as to, or any consensus as to why these people screamed at the concerts and he says funny you should say that because he did ask these these young who's these then youngsters at these concerts why they screamed and they couldn't explain why they screamed they just said some of them even said that before they went into the concert hall they promised themselves that it wouldn't be because they'd seen the footage on tv or whatever they've seen the fans screaming and they said oh i'm not gonna do that i'm not stupid <laughs> screaming what do you want to do that and then they walk in and it was like something took hold of them and they began screaming. In fact, screaming more than probably the person next to them. So from walking in saying, I'm not going to do it, they were going in and doing it. Now, no one's really come up with an answer why people did this. These witnesses that this author interviewed don't have a reason for it. They just said that they got caught in the moment and they just couldn't help themselves. Now, what if, what if, like Hitler, okay, Sound frequencies were being used at concerts in order to gain to to turn the gain up, if you like, on the sound frequency to in order to gain this kind of excitable mania from from the public. It's just an idea. It's just an idea to throw out there. Who knows? I think I actually think you bang on the money. I mean, I, I know from my own research that the all well, the so-called fifth beetle, Theodora Theodore. Adorno, Adorno, that's the one, uh, that he was meant to be the forefront of uh, musical psychology, he's a musicologist, a philosopher, uh, and that he was working with the Beatles and his expertise was exactly what you just said. It was studying how the fascists and the communists managed to use sound frequencies and music to translate into this kind of mass psychosis of the crowd and to draw people in and tuck them in. Uh, And I actually I've got a quote here that I'm going to read uh, just just out, Matt, because I thought this was a fantastic quote, and I think it kind of gives a really good understanding just for the listeners who don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but in 
1948, in his work, The Philosophy of Modern Music, Frankfurt School leader Theodore Adorno argued that the purpose of modern music is to literally drive the listener insane. He justified this by asserting that modern society was a hotbed of evil, authoritarianism, and potential fascism, and that only by first destroying civilization through the spread of all forms of cultural pessimism and perversity could liberation occur. On the role of modern music, he wrote, it is not that schizophrenia is directly expressed therein, but the music imprints upon itself an attitude similar to that of the mentally ill. The individual brings about his own disintegration. He imagines the fulfillment of the promise through magic, but nonetheless within the realm of immediate actuality. Its concern is to dominate schizophrenic traits through the aesthetic consciousness. In so doing, it would hope to vindicate insanity as true health. Necrophilia, he added, is the ultimate <laughs> expression of true health in this sick society. Now, that was just a quote I found from one of his texts, but it gives you an idea of the kind of expertise and ideas he was working with. And then we find out that he was intimately connected to the Beatles and he was actually known as the fifth Beatles. So I'm going to hand it back to you, Matt, to maybe just talk a little bit about who was this Machiavellian figure behind them? Because it really ties into what you're saying about could they have been having their music manipulated to induce in the crowds and in the girls and in the audience this kind of change of psychosis to maybe take us to a more perverse culture? Yeah, um, I've got to say, I, I'm, I don't buy the Theodore Adorno. And I, I go into this in a little bit of detail in, in, in my video that we're talking uh, that, that you you were that your attention was turned to the Bloomsbury 60s counterculture video that I've got on my YouTube channel, Conspiro TV. I go a little bit into it uh, 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 um, with regards to Adorno. I, I mentioned very briefly that I don't think he wrote their songs. Um, I have got my doubts about Coleman as well. Um, um, but yeah, I, I think if he was involved with the Beatles, it was from another angle, from the avant-garde, um, a tonal, 12-tone angle. Um, I don't know if you want to go down that route. Um, I've got a quote sure, here. Let's from... do it, Matt. Let's let, let's let's stay on him for a little while. I think it's useful. Um, he was, you know, I mean, we know that he was definitely, of course, working with them closely. Some people say that he was intelligence handler, uh, but this idea that some people put forth is that actually he wrote all the songs, uh, and I think a part of that is because, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he own the songs? the back catalogue before Michael Jackson bought them off him? Was he actually the owner of the songs? Because people... No. Okay, well... There's no evidence of that. And this is one of the reasons why I'm doubtful. Um, there's no evidence of that. The people who owned it before that was actually Sony. Um, Sony owned it. And also ATV, which is a company which was owned back in the day, back in the 60s, by Lou Grade, Sir Lou Grade, who was a TV producer and executive in the UK. Um, if you think of programmes... Oh God, I can't remember now. He 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 was like a, a TV producer, The Prisoner. You remember the, the you know the program The Prisoner that was do, on the yeah, TV yeah. in the sixties? Yeah, he produced that and various other TV shows. He was like Mr. Showbiz. He was like the big. He was like he was like the archetypal old style uh, showbiz agent. You know, big with a big fat cigar in his mouth and you know, kind of like, hey, you come over here, let's do some business. He was like one of those kind of old school people. So he actually bought the rights to the Beatles music and Sony then got them. And then, yeah, Michael Jackson. And I, I, 
again, I'm not going to go into this, just just a, a brief tangent. I do sometimes wonder if Michael Jackson's death is connected in some way to the Beatles catalogue, because it is worth, well, at the time of his death, it was worth something like a billion pounds. So I do wonder what what, what was going on there, um, because now I think Sony might actually have the, the, the control of them back because um, they were in Michael, they were about to go. Anyway, I'm not going to go down that route anyway, but um, I, I think so it, we'll I, I think it's for, yeah, definitely for another time. But uh, I think anyone that is naive enough to think that once an artist like Michael Jackson or, you know, you could throw Amy Winehouse in there too, uh, because for the last four or five years of her career, she wasn't bringing in any money. She couldn't sustain at all. Uh, sometimes, uh, they are much more profitable when they die. And Michael Jackson had this added bonus for this back catalogue that was up for grabs. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into that either on this one. <laughs> it's such a big topic. But uh, you, what, what we do understand that these people, these record labels, they are the very wicked people. You know, they, they certainly do not care about the artists or about their health. And if they think somebody's more profitable dead, well, that's no different than thinking that you can earn a profit from pharmaceuticals that kill people or war that kill people. So I'm certainly not beyond the idea that that happens all the time in music. And if you want to know why a lot of artists die, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons. And, you know, Michael Jackson was going to start, he was at the time, around the time of his death, he was talking quite openly about certain people in the music industry. I think Tommy Mottola was a music head. He was calling him the devil, uh, quote unquote. So he was getting a little bit more vocal um, about certain issues. And and I think, yeah, it was it probably was the time for him to go. He should have just uh, stayed Records. on his uh, Ferris wheel at Neverland. He, he should never have yeah, started yeah, speaking Yeah, out. and I do wonder sometimes about the paedophilia uh, accusations as well and the court cases and what yeah um and sony as well sony when you look at sony it's also known as cbs and cbs has provable links to the cia um but yeah that's, well, that's another was the same, wasn't he we are going off on the tangent but yeah. yeah prince had big big issues with the music industry he certainly knew a lot uh that was why he actually changed his name to the symbol was to get out of his yeah, contract yeah. so yeah i think all, of, all when you look into the music industry it is absolutely rancid it's filled with all kinds of darkness so uh but i think it's good actually just to have that brief interlude of that conversation that we've just had there because it kind of helps us frame what maybe the beatles had got themselves into unknowingly uh, and it's not how we see it it's not this kind of world where you go in you're young you're partying yeah all that stuff happens but you also have this shadow let's imagine like a shadow government behind you controlling you that's how the music industry works and you have to turn up you have to be bringing in the money uh, and you're certainly not free to just do what you want. You have handlers, don't you? And I guess that's where Theodore Dono comes in. If we look at his history, he was exactly the kind of person you would want to handle someone like the Beatles if you was going to use them to start programming the mass mind. Yeah, and um, with regards to EMI, the label that the Beatles were on, uh, they were signed to the Parlophone label in, in the UK and Capital in, in, in America, but it was basically EMI. If you look at EMI's history, it's pretty much steeped in in, in military um, during the, the Second World War um, and, and, and before the, the Second World War, actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, EMI was involved in making radar um, for uh, the British military. Uh, and I think the concept of stereo sound, actually, I don't have the information here in front of me. I mean, this would make another podcast or a chat all on its own. I've written, I've actually got a, an article about this on my site, Conspiro Media, 
uh, where I go into this in much more detail. But um, yeah, I think the concept of stereo sound actually was born partly from uh, um, um, uh, experiments that were conducted by EMI staff, by EMR staffers during the Second World War in order to build uh, uh, equipment that was capable of, of, of being used for radar purposes during the Second World War. And this carried on after the Second World War for EMI. And indeed, in the 1980s, when they became Thorn EMI, they became, they became if not the largest, one of the, if not the largest, one of the largest um, nuclear defence uh, contractors in, in Europe, if not the world. Um, so, yeah, so when you you when when people were playing their Spice Girls records in the 90s, who were EMI, I think, um, who knows where that money was going to, where those CDs were being bought. But so this is the world that the Beatles came from. And I think one of their sound engineers actually began his life at EMI or his earliest years at EMI. One of the sound engineers at the Abbey Road Studios was working within the radar department. His name escapes me now, but he was actually working in the radar department before he then went on to work in the recording studio side of things with producer George Martin and the Beatles. Um, just a little segue, you were, talk you were giving quotes there about uh, music and, and um, the control of music. Uh, how you can control people through music. I've got a, an individual here, by the, a quote from an individual here by the name of William Sargent. He gets a mention in the video too, in my video. Um, basically, William Sargent was a practitioner in sleep hypnosis. And he has been linked, although it's not been proven conclusively that he, he was working, uh, he's been linked over the years to MI5, to MI6, and of course, MKUltra. Uh, during the Second World War, I'm just giving you a brief bio here before I get into him. Uh, during the Second World War, he worked uh, at the Sutton Emergency Hospital in uh, Sussex, in the English county of Sussex, which was later renamed the Belmont Hospital. And he was administered when, when he was there, he administered hypnosis and uh, electroconvulsive therapy and drugs on people suffering from shell shock uh, from the war. And then he, after this, he went, he then went on and dispensed these kinds of uh, treatments on patients within the Britain's National Health Service. So he was head of psychiatry at a National Health Service hospital for Joe Public, basically. He was in, he was administering these these treatments on members of the public. And in more recent years, he was doing this, I think it was around the 60s to the 1980s. But in more recent years, former patients have come forward and said that he damaged them, that whilst they were in, in his hospital, they'd been inflicted, let's say, had been inflicted with treatments by Sergeant, who's been dubbed the Mind Bender General, incidentally. They were inflicted with, with treatments that left them uh, damaged for a while, uh, psychologically damaged. Uh, one, one of his, uh, this was St. Thomas's Hospital in London, incidentally, which is still uh, it still exists. One of his patients there talked later of um, being given massive uh, amounts of drugs in order to keep her asleep. And she became uh, uh, she became, to, qu to quote her, a walking zombie. Then there's another uh, uh, and, and, and indeed there's another patient I've got uh, I, I could mention. But um, yeah, with regards to this particular former patient, she also uh recalls that while she was lying in bed she could hear the nurses talking about her and her treatment and that they were going to quote unquote repattern her thinking now she didn't go in she wasn't a psychiatric case she'd gone into hospital for something completely different and she's being you know being 
This is what's, what happened to her. So she claims. And there's another patient who was there who claims her memory was virtually wiped. She couldn't remember her younger years uh, when she was at school. She couldn't remember the birth of her children. Um, and, and there was someone else who was there who, who claims that. And she uh, there was another patient there who had a background in nursing who claims that she was given a truth drug because she saw the bottle and she could she saw the name on it and she instantly recognized that it was a truth drug. Now, as I say, there's been no proof whatsoever that, that Sergeant was linked to MK Ultra, but he did write a book in 1957. He, a, bo a book of his was published in 1957, which was called Battle for the Mind, the Mechanics of Indoctrination, Brainwashing and Thought Control. And basically it's a book that goes into the various ways in which uh, humans and animals can have their minds controlled and bent to the will of the the people that are, that are doing this. Now, in uh, with regards to what you were saying there, uh, with regards to Adorno, I've got a quote from Sargent here. This is from his book, and I quote, Recordings of the human brain show that it is particularly sensitive to rhythmic stimulation by percussion and bright light, among other things, and certain rates of rhythm can build up recordable abnormalities of brain function and explosive states of tension, sufficient even to produce convulsive fits in predisposed subjects. Furthermore, it is easier to disorganize the normal function of the brain by attacking simultaneously with several strong rhythms played in different tempos. Now, before I, I stop talking about William Sargent, something else I talk about in the video um, briefly is some allegations that have been put forward regarding William Sargent. There's, there's a website that you can go take a look at. It's run by a character by the name of Redwell Trabant. It's called The Beatles Conspiracy. Now, there's an article on there, and I think it's it's within it's in an it's in an article about mk ultra and the beatles but i might be wrong but there's a quote there from an an anonymous uh, contributor who claims that in london in the 60s they were a young teenager at the time and they were actually they, they were actually a human guinea pig that's what they claim they were they were a human guinea pig that were being fed um various forms of drugs um in order to see what the effects were and this was being kind of like uh, supported by the british police now three people were doing these mk ultra tests on this anonymous um person uh one of those was dr richard asher who was the father of jane asher who uh, jane asher the actress the english actress who in the 1960s was uh, for most of the 1960s was dating Paul McCartney was actually engaged to him for a time and indeed Paul McCartney did live with the Asher family at their home uh, between 63 and 66. Uh, he was one of the doctors alleged to be uh, been taking part in these MK Ultra experiments. The other one was Emmanuel Miller, a reported Tavistock clinic author and uh, psychiatrist, and the other one was uh, William Sargent. So yeah, um, yeah. I think that's a really important link up because essentially what were, what the crux of the matter is here is that in the 1950s, they were doing all of these experiments and a lot of them were done on people who had shell shock, people who had come in for maybe mild depression and then got locked away in a psychiatric hospital where they was doing all of these uh, experiments where they was using LSD and all of these newly found uh, psychotropic drugs. And they were trying to essentially figure out how can we program someone to make, for example, a Manchurian candidate or to make somebody just bend to our will. And then it's no, it cannot be a coincidence that just after that, 
we had this mass movement that was filled with all of these characters that were working on these ideas, including the rhythmic music, like you said, people who were analyzing how can we get a crowd to behave in a certain way. And then that scene all of a sudden gets influxed with all of these drugs that were just being used a few years before for MKUltra, and that was LSD, uh, which coincidentally was actually uh, discovered in Basel in Switzerland, which is where the Bank of International Settlements is right now. So I like that link up too. <laughs> but is that how you frame it as well, Matt, that essentially yeah. MKUltra and what they were doing on an individual level, it was like, right, can we do this on a mass scale? And that's what the 60s was really the first wave of. Well, there's kind of evidence for that. Uh, just I'll just add on to that, that Dr. Richard Asher also uh, penned a article for a medical journal, I think it was, which was called Respectable Hypnosis. And this came out in the late 50s, I think it was. You can find this online. I do feature it in my video, but you can find it online. And in it, he states how he has used, um, he was a general doctor. I mean, he didn't specialize in psychiatry. He was a general practitioner basically who worked at a hospital in in england somewhere i can't remember the name of it but he states in this article in this for this journal or whatever it was um that um, he did administer hypnosis on his patients to great success and i think he also admit he also uh, staged sessions in his home um with privately for patients who wanted to go and see him there he would administer them with hypnosis so this is something he definitely was uh, involved in and there is the suggestion that maybe McCartney whilst he was living there was was some kind of was a, you know was some kind of MK Ultra sleeper if you like I mean there there, there is the story that the song Yesterday um, came to him in, in a dream he's he's said this so many times over the years it's like one of those things in his interviews where when he starts talking about this he he, he kind of goes into automatic mode you know he's, he can kind of guess what he's going to say next if you listen to his interviews because he said he said it so many times but yeah so many times he said that he he went to bed and he woke up and he had this tune in his head is it possible that these kind of things were happening to him whilst he, he was at he was at, at the Asher house, household when this happened? Is it possible that, you know, his father-in-law to be was somehow connected to this? Also, Eleanor Rigby came to McCartney in a dream, apparently. And so did Yellow Submarine. So I understand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with regards to LSD and using it among the amongst the public and and you know, an experiment, an agenda. There's a book called Acid Dreams. I can't remember who the authors of it are off the top of my head. And I don't have the quote here in front of me, but if you look at the book Acid Dreams, it's basically the history of LSD um, from the beginning, right up until the book was published sometime in the 80s or 90s, I think it was. So it does take in the, the quote unquote counterculture movement of the 60s. And they do, they, 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 the, the book is mainly compiled from freedom of information um, files that they've managed to get into the history of LSD and how it's been used by various bodies, including the military, politicians, government and all the rest of that kind of aspect of it. And there are quotes uh, in, in this book where there were organizations linked to universities and government and politicians in the US in 67 around that time that were looking at how LSD can be used or could be used in the minds of younger people who were engaged in politics. So as I say, I don't have the quote here in front of me. I don't have the book here in front of me, but basically the, the theme of this conference or part of this conference was to discuss, could LSD be basically used 
or how did LSD affect the mind of the young? Could it be used to change somebody's um, um, loyalties, politically speaking? Could it be used to nullify uh, a would-be or a passionate believer in the end of the Vietnam War? Could it be used to to dampen that? Could it be used to change their mind? Could it be used to control their mind? This is serious stuff that was being discussed by people in the higher up echelons of politics and 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 that area of of you know of society these were this was this isn't conspiracy theory talk this isn't woo woo this this is real stuff this this was going on so no it's not a conspiracy theory there were people out there at the time that were looking into this you know they were looking at the way that the young people were acting during this so-called summer of love and seeing if they could use that drug in order to sway the young generation towards going to the left of politics or to the right of politics or not going anywhere in politics just becoming you know um uh, you know uh, just dead dead to to any form of protest so yeah it, it definitely happened it definitely definitely did happen no conspiracy theory yeah this was like the glory days of the CIA's crazy experiments i mean i'm sure they go on today but a lot of this stuff has now been declassified or as just they had no choice because so many people exposed it but they were doing experiments on people who were going like like for example you get a teenager who would go in uh to see a doctor because they had some mild depression the next thing they knew they'd spend two years in a psychiatric hospital where they was experimented on uh there was loads of connections with the manson family and what they were doing with mk ultra he was known to different i think he was involved with a few universities and programs before all of that happened uh, also, I know there was a lot of experiments done on uh, the black community. They were infecting people purposely with syphilis. The CIA was actually hiring prostitutes and then getting them to infect people purposely. So all kinds of crazy experiments. And I actually just had an interview with a guy um, yesterday uh, who's got a great podcast uh, called Raised by Giants. And he's done a lot of research into how the CIA was essentially doing these um uh, hiring a lot of people who had clairvoyancy skills uh, and using them to train people, other soldiers, to try and teach them how they could remote view or, or do astral travel. Uh, and there's loads of evidence of this too. So this was when they was really like going to town on what was the limits of their kind of, or I guess how far they could go with controlling the mass mind uh, or the individual mind. So yeah, n- no conspiracy there. But I guess what we're getting at is how much was this, being used on the bands of that culture and scene uh and and we can not discuss when we discuss the beatles and fall mccartney and paul mccartney because this is the listeners will all be saying but you haven't asked him about did paul mccartney get switched out now what's your views on that i'm just going to throw it straight back at you man um, and for listeners that don't know this is the idea that paul mccartney at some point was switched out the original paul mccartney was killed and then this fake paul mccartney was put in and this is something there's so many people online i have to say i have literally no opinion on this it's not my area of expertise and i actually think it's one of those things where it doesn't make any difference to the to this story that we're talking about there's so much evidence that already exists that they were being used to to take us to a more perverse and degraded society that I sometimes think when you add something like this, it just can disparage the message that where, where there's already a lot of evidence. So I just leave those ones alone because they're a bit of a red herring, herring sometimes, but I know a lot of listeners will say, no, there's value in that. So I'm going to throw it back to you, Matt. Did they switch out Paul McCartney? 
Okay, so the original um, conspiracy theory, which came out in the 60s, this actually came out whilst the Beatles were together, and this became mainstream. This was like in the British and American newspapers and on the TV, which in itself makes me think, okay. Um, so, yeah, so basically this this came into the public sphere, if you like, and into the mainstream in 1969, thanks to a couple of radio DJs that claimed they got some phone calls. There was a radio DJ or two radio DJs in, in the US who claimed they got a phone call from this listener who says, hey, man, have you have you played this song backwards? It says Paul is dead. Something like that. Anyway, I'm, I'm really sort of skipping through it really quickly. Um, so and 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 these these uh, claims uh, initially before that radio store, radio DJs latched onto it before that it was published in student in a student magazine and 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 students have been talking about it on campus in America you know in the late 60s and it became this huge national mainstream thing so the, the the theory is is that Paul McCartney one day left the studios at Abbey Road uh, in London got in his car sped off crashed and was killed um and this either happened on because it happened on 9/11/1966 either it's the american way of looking at 9/11 which is different to the british so you either whichever theory of this you subscribe to he either died on september the 11th 1966 or the you know the other way round okay uh, november the whatever it is so so already you've got you've got a, a, a conspiracy theory that's going off into different you know people contesting just the minutiae of it. Um, so that's that's the basic theory that he died in a car crash, and because the Beatles were so huge, absolutely huge, 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 popular, and all the rest of it, they they couldn't just announce that Paul McCartney was dead because he was also one of the most popular members of the band. He was good looking, cute Paul. We, it, so. Basically, what happened was the insiders within the Beatles inner circle, so Brian Epstein and, and George Martin and others, decided that they would bring in a double. So what they did was they brought in this double who'd won a Beatles lookalike contest to take over. OK, uh, and he sang the songs and, 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 and all that. OK, my doubts with this. And I know people might be watching or listening to this and thinking, oh, he's a shill. He's like, Matt, 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 Matt's a shill because he doesn't look the, the way I see it is this. My mind is open to this until, you know, my mind is open to this. If, if somebody comes along and says, OK, look, have you looked at this evidence? OK, so my mind is open. I am open to to switching. Um, so, yeah. So he either died in a car crash as an accident. It was a car accident or he was murdered because there is this theory that's since come out that he was he had agreed to write this the, he or he'd offered to write the soundtrack for a documentary on the assassination of JFK. And this was looking into the alternative theories. Um, and uh, apparently, so I understand that the guy that was making the film actually rejected his offer. I think there is actual documentation to prove that the guy who was going to put this film together said to Paul, no, actually, I don't want Paul McCartney having anything to do with the soundtrack because it's not highbrow enough. I, I, I don't want it to be pop music oh if he was going to put music in it he wanted it to be more kind of you know uh, sophisticated not just all that trashy pop music so right the thing is is that i've been a beatles fan since i was three years old so i'm now 54 i've been a beatles fan for decades and decades like a, a beatles nut okay 
Now, I've watched the interviews over the decades since I was a kid, listened to the records. And I, you see, the thing is, I can see mannerisms in interviews pre-1966 McCartney to post-1966 McCartney. Mannerisms, little ticks in behavioral ticks, if you like, in interviews, okay, that he's done that no actor could truly perfect. Doesn't matter if you're Robert De Niro, Robert De Niro or Al Pacino or Laurence Olivier, there are certain tics, movements that no actor of any kind of, I would suggest of any, um, of even of the highest caliber could mimic so effectively, so believably. Then there's also the recall. Okay, there are moments and, and you see this in the Let It Be film where the Beatles are in the studio. It's a film that came out in 1970. It's a film of the Beatles in the studio recording songs. And you also get the in-studio banter in between. It recently got re-released uh, and called Get Back. It was directed by uh, and produced by Peter Jackson. Now, if you listen to some of the instances in there where Paul is talking about the early days in Liverpool or the, or the early days of the Beatlemania years, he talks with such great, um, the recall is too familiar to his heart for it to be made up. He talks with such warmth and he, he's talking about it in such a quick, quick fire way. You know, he's, he's making him, he's doing impressions of some of the people that he's talking about from back in Liverpool. And he's, and he's saying things to John, like, Hey, do you remember when this and that happened? Oh, she, she was funny, wasn't she? It just doesn't come across as false to me. Okay. The other thing that makes me suspicious is when in history, right, apart from JFK, when in history has a conspiracy been supported by the mainstream media? When we look at 9-11, okay, just as one example, or when we look at the corona conspiracy or any of these other aspects that we believe are constructs or have been tampered with and we're not being given the full facts okay when we look at these various subject streams like let's let's just put 9-11 out there okay they they don't they, they, when was you know when when do conspiracy theories about 9-11 ever get broadcasted in the mainstream media like paul is dead is and was uh, and one by the mainstream, I mean, with regards to Paul is dead, it was broadcasted uh, on on mainstream television. It was on the on the front pages of the newspapers. It was constantly being reported on, and and not in a mocking satirical manner. It was given some kind of um, seriousness. It was it wasn't like like uh, treated like it should be something that should be pushed aside as a as a little joke. But when it comes to things like serious things like 9-11, that, that never happens. So, so why was that's my question. Why is the mainstream so why was the mainstream back in the 60s so ready to make this? Because if the mainstream media hadn't have pushed this back in the 60s, how many people would know about it now, arguably? So and then you have to look at some of the connections. Again, I, I, I pass my um, tributes to Redwell Trabant from the previously mentioned uh, Beatles conspiracy uh, website. He looked into the uh, are you aware of I am a phony and rotten apple? Mm -hmm. There's a, a series of videos which are kind of Paul is dead videos. And they've been going they've been published on YouTube since about 2008 or some sometime around then. And they, they go under the moniker of either the Rotten Apple or um, I Am A Phony. 
Now, um, Red World Chaban looked into the background of of um, of iamophony uh, and and rotten apple, and and discovered that the um, the business, if you like, was registered to Neil Aspinall. Neil Aspinall is one of or was one of the Beatles' closest, most inside of insiders. And when I mean inside, he was at school in Liverpool, I think, with both Paul McCartney and George Harrison. So he was school friends of Paul and George's. Then when the Beatles started getting more popular in in the early 60s, he became their roadie. So he'd be carrying their their equipment everywhere. And he became road manager. So when the Beatles found fame and, and, and... moved from Liverpool to London and and became super famous. He moved with them and he stayed with them right the way through the touring years through as a, as a roadie, road manager, I think he was. And then afterwards when they formed their company, Apple, to the point that he was made a managing, I think he became CEO or managing director or something very high up within the hierarchy of the Apple um, Corporation, if you like, Apple Corp. So and and he, he remained there until he passed away. Uh, he retired, uh, I think, in the 2000s, and he passed away not long after that. So he was a super, super Beatles insider. He was like the gatekeeper, if you like. If you wanted in the in in the later post split years, if you if you were a journalist and you wanted to get in touch with the, the Beatles to ask them about a project, or you had to get through him. He was who you had to get through because. All the Beatles would defer to Neil. It would be like, well, if you want us to be involved in a project, go to Neil, okay, and he'll screen you. So he, so yeah, so Redwell Trabant discovered that this I am a phony rotten apple PID channel. He found business records like registers, or I, I haven't got again, <laughs> I haven't got the information in front of me, but he actually found company house records or something like that with Neil Aspinall's company linked to this I am a phony. Um, organization that's making these videos and if you look at these videos which are very well made he he actually features Beatles music on them that have you ever tried putting Beatles music on a video and then uploading it to YouTube within seconds it will get taken down so how come his haven't been taken down his videos never get taken down they've been on there uh, for years and years and years and they've not been touched so I do have my reservations about Paul is dead but Having said that, there are facial differences, okay? There are facial differences between Paul and some other Pauls. I won't go into this too much, um, but there is there are differences, and they're differences. These are facial differences that you can see post-66 and pre-66. And I thought I was alone in thinking this. I thought I was, oh, look at me. What a great researcher I am. Oh, oh, I've discovered that um, actually there's been double support before 1966. Actually, there's a number of Facebook groups and researchers that have looked into this as well who who aren't fully on board with the Paul is dead narrative as we know it, the mainstream one, which is that he died in 66. Um, My looking of it at the moment, but as I say, it might my view changes all the time is that Paul didn't die in 1966. He carried on, but there are doubles. If you look post uh, 66, if you look pre 66, sorry, there are one or two Paul McCartney's that you can see on video or in photographs. There are two that I've noticed. There's one with a hook nose. Okay. Or like, like an, uh, his nose isn't straight at the tip. It kind of hooks. It's got kind of like a hook on it. Okay. And then there's the flat, uh, there's the flatter nosed McCartney, which when you look at the side of him, his nose doesn't 
go into a hook. It stays straight. So that is a ding-a-ling-a-ling alarm bell. There's also the eye colours. There's one Paul who's got kind of like greenish, hazily, I don't know. And then there's the brown-eyed Paul. And then there's the photographs that you see. Uh, there's this one particular photograph, and I can't remember what year it was. I think it was 1969. And one of the photographs is of Paul in at an airport. He's either boarding or he's walking through an airport, I think it is. And he's with his wife, his then wife, Linda, I think. And he's clean shaven. And then we see a picture of Paul two days later, and he's almost got a full beard. So people have asked, well, had there's no way in the world, even with a really good, you know, even if you can grow hair really well, that you can do that so quickly. So, yes, I, I do think there are more than one Paul, but that does not mean that um, Paul McCartney died. I just think that um, there are just a number of doubles out there. And it could be that there are a number of doubles of John that were around, of um, Ringo, of George. Indeed, when John Lennon was taken into the um, the hospital uh, after he was shot, the doctor that was treating him at the time, and, and one or two of the nurses, I think, actually stated that they didn't even recognise that they were that it was John Lennon that was lying on the gurney. So, yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. I have got my suspicions about Paul is dead. It's just too, there's too much mainstream media attached to it and and that in itself just makes me think mm -mm, you know mm, you know so i think that's a big red flag myself too whenever i, I mean uh, i've been researching my entire life and that is always a red flag whenever you see the mainstream pushing a narrative and i also think you know at this point where we are now let's you know it's 2023 we're talking about the beatles and how they were used to help construct this mass mind this fantasy reality that we're all well it's not reality a fantasy existence where everyone's kind of living in this i'd say it's like we've got a, we've been indoctrinated into a cult it's like a mass cult now they were doing the small experiments in the 50s 60s and i think the goal was to take us all to that place you know they achieved it in maybe a little cult with charles manson now it's like no now we're all in that cult of manson it's like a global death cult uh, and that's how you can pull off something like coronavirus Everyone has to be in the cult. I mean, of course, there's a percentage of us that aren't, but it's a small percentage. Uh, and, and and therefore, I think when you have things like this, it's like we could talk all night about, well, I saw Paul's nose. And like you said, it was hooked in one. And then I'd say, oh, but I saw this. And it's like, does it actually matter? Because the bigger narrative is actually the true narrative. And that's actually much more important to understanding what's happening in the world today. Uh, and I do think they always plant false leads for conspiracy theorists to go down so that they don't actually look at what's staring them in the face, which is that they were doing MK Ultra, They used the Beatles to indoctrinate a whole generation. They essentially destroyed the traditional family unit. They destroyed relationships between teenagers and the parents. Uh, in the space of just one generation, it was absolutely insane. Uh, they were using the Tavistock Clinic, all of that stuff. That is really what we should be talking about rather than uh, Paul McCartney and his, uh, his doubles. And, you know, there is a lot of reasons why they could have had that too. I mean, if you're managing a global phenomenon, these guys have to be in 10 places at once all the time. There's always different interviews to go to, different meet and greets. Uh, you might even want to have them like play a concert, like back to back to back. And if somebody's sick, it's like, we ain't cancelling that concert. No way. We, 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 we want the money. We don't want to, you know, refund everyone who was uh, going to be at that concert tonight so there's all kinds of other reasons why you would have doubles yeah well that uh, was so, being used yeah so that was not, being that's done i take it matt is like it doesn't actually matter enough to me and i also think uh same with september the 11th like people 
Uh, there's all these other theories like, was the plane a hologram? Was this? And I'm like, listen, you don't have to go down those paths because at the end of the day, you'll never prove it. And if you can never prove it, let's just stick to the stuff we can prove, like, you know, the $2.3 trillion in World Trade Center number seven, uh, the fact that no plane hit that building, you know, focus on the big obvious things if you want to ever try and wake someone up to something that's happening. Because the moment you throw in like a Paul McCartney is dead, they'll say, Oh no, you're just crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not case, not case, not case. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's exactly. the way I just... see it. So that's just my... yeah. But one thing that we can say is there was an awful lot of occultism around uh, the Beatles, and they did have links to all different kinds of people. So yeah, uh, can I just get your opinion on that? There's all the you know, if you look at the Beatles and some of the album covers. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've seen them all, like the yesterday and today one with the babies. Lots of sing- like like symbols of the hands, you know, Freemasonic yeah. symbols, the sixes, the devils, uh, devil sign. Uh, do you think that the? I mean, we know there was the Eastern part, which you already mentioned as well. Do you think that was a key part of the Beatles uh, adding this occultism as a kind of means to take us away from a Christian culture? Um, well, they certainly were. Uh... I mean, of course, the Beatles haven't, as far as I'm aware, have never come forward and said, hey, yes, we were into the occult. But I I think they were to one extent or another. Sure, definitely. And and you do see the symbols um, in their artwork, in their album artwork, also um, their reading matter, what they used to read. And and um, yeah, I mean, ugh. I mean, if you look at if you look at their second album with the Beatles, you've got them. And actually, I use this as the logo part of the logo for my website, the Occult Beatles. If you look at that, you've got the black and white thing going on. So it's a black and white photograph. So, of course, you could say that's duality. You could say black and white checkerboard floor, Masonic symbolism. And at the time they took that photograph, I think the the record company didn't want them to do it. They said they, they wanted something a bit more upbeat because they didn't want this black and white photograph with these four figures, because this was right in the center of Beatlemania. And here we've got four like cute, lovable mop tops as they were known. And they're not smiling. They're they're looking straight at the camera and they're not smiling and they're in black and white. And so there was, there was actually a battle with the record company, according to George Martin and one or two members of the Beatles and Brian Epstein, that the record company didn't want this cover to come out because they said it was too morose for the Beatlemania cute, cuddly image that they wanted to portray. Because this album came out right in the middle of all that mania, um, whether it was, you know, um, prearranged mania or not. Um, But no, the Beatles were adamant. They put their foot down. No, they wanted this black and white photograph with just their one, each of their eye showing not the other eye. So you can look at that. So so, like I say, you've got the one-eyed symbolism going on there. I mean, I mean, I, got- I, you have to think like a generation before, let's say 10 years before to have an al- album cover full of um, if you haven't seen it, everyone just look at the yesterday and today album cover. Uh, it's got all of these babies and, and, and body parts strewn around and they're all smiling. But there's this really macabre scene of dolls and blood and body parts and limbs. Uh, Ten years before, that would have been considered uh, unpublishable. There is no way you'd have got that through. So that kind of shows you that it, it got really extreme really quickly, what we was normalizing. Uh, and do you think that do you think that that was kind of part of the process? It's like we was being slowly um let's say um desensitized to all of these kind of imagery through these be through the Beatles and many other bands around that time. Because once you got to the 70s, like the like the sex pistols and that, I mean that was off the scale compared to the Beatles. Yeah. So it, it did yeah. get more and more radical. The, like every generation upped it a notch. And today, you know, today you've got uh, I was saying to someone recently, we walked past 
uh, a couple of kids as we was walking into a block of flats. They were watching hard po- hardcore pornography. They was about seven <laughs> years old on the phone. You know, what I mean, so like like we've really gone off the charts now where we are today. So it does feel like there was this every generation they tend up a notch to another level. Well, I mean, you, you you say it's it was shocking at the time, you know, when this record cover came out. I think it was in 1966, although we do have to say that I will just point out that as soon as it was released, it got pulled back by the record company because some of the stockists of the, the record stores said they weren't going to sell it. So in, instantly the record company got cold feet and thought, oh, God, you know, they, they were going to lose sales. So they had to call them back. Uh, and they they pulp they turned them into pulp and buried them I think so anyone who's got an original copy of that keep hold of it because it's worth thousands okay as far as I'm I'm aware if you find an original of that be careful look after it um, so 1966 you say it was shocking I mean it's shocking in the Beatles career if you compare what they'd been doing before that. This is just three years on or four years on from Love Me Do, the cute, cuddly, mop-top Beatles who, let's not forget, were popular across the wide spectrum of society. They weren't just a pop group that were popular to young teeny boppers and perhaps more to to college students and university students. They weren't just a band for the young. Their appeal was mass appeal. It was the grannies, the granddads, the mums, the dads, the uncles, the aunties, the toddlers. Their their reach was massive. So that's so when they launched their career, they were like the they were kind of like the clean cut, um, please everybody kind of pop group, like a boy band, if you like, like a squeaky clean boy, boy band. This is just three years before that album cover came out. That's how amazing, even in their own world, how quick it was from three years before being the cute, cuddly mop tops with their nice little collarless jackets and their ties and the nice clean shirts to that ripping up doll parts and babies. And um, this, this and is it's, exactly what I was getting at when I said that is how a cult so, works. Yeah. Isn't what, it? Like when what, you yeah said, well, what I would what I would say to that is sorry to interrupt, but it's just no, dawned no, on me. Ahead, what, what, what what I would say about that is basically you could say that in 1963, when they won the hearts of the grannies and the granddads and the toddlers and, and the whole cross spectrum, they they won their love, brought them on board the Beatles bus and drove them along and then took them to the, the worlds of horror with with this cover. Opened their minds, if you like, opened their minds, whether they wanted to wanted to wanted their minds to be opened or not. They opened their minds to different streams of consciousness different things like ripping up babies so yeah so so yeah so and and with lsd the beatles were at the vanguard of promoting lsd to the masses i mean if you think in 1966 when the song tomorrow never knows came out on their album revolver i think it came out in august 66 and again applying this what came before the beatles was the squeaky clean thing to to this point, August 66, Tomorrow Never Knows is basically a song that John wrote, or so we're told he wrote. Um, and it's based mainly on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or as it's otherwise known, authored by Timothy Leary, the psychedelic experience. And basically what the psychedelic experience was, it's it's more than this, but it's partly a manual. So this came out in 65 or 66 and it's a manual basically. And this is how this is early on in the days of LSD before it became a widely used street drug. So this is back in the days when LSD was still being used mainly by the intelligence community, the military, um, worlds of psychiatry, 
um, so-called intellectuals in universities were discussing it. Uh, Timothy Leary as well was one of those. I mean, before um, he uh, he left and became the acid guru of the 60s counterculture in the early 60s, he was a professor at, Har uh, at Harvard. I think it was Harvard University looking into the effects of psilocybin on human subjects. So when you were talking earlier about how these uh, drugs were being used, um, these hallucinogens were being used uh, on humans to see how they how they reacted to this. And MK Ultra, the mind control operation sponsored by the CIA, was a part of this. Leary came from that world. He was at, uh, at, at the in university as a professor conducting experiments, and Harvard was linked to MK Ultra. That's a fact. So he was he comes from that world, and then all of a sudden. Uh, you could say in 1964-65 he starts growing his hair a little bit longer gets kicked out so we're told he gets kicked out of his job his post as a professor and becomes this guru for the young uh turn telling them to turn on tune in drop out and to and to stop protesting he tells them to stop protesting there's an interview from 66 i think around that time where he's he's telling the young to what, what he means by drop out when he says tune in, turn on, drop out. What he means is to drop out of protesting against the Vietnam War. He's telling the youngsters who are scared shitless they're going to be um, conscripted into Vietnam. He's telling them not to protest against that, to not burn their draft cards in protest, but to drop out, just take some acid. So this is another reason why Leary is, is um, regarded as a CIA plant. In order to, because the claim is, is that he was put there in this uh, this countercultural um, uh, landscape, if you like, to steer away any effective um, uh, protest from the young with regards to Vietnam, instead to 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 blot themselves out with LSD and and turn inward, if you like, instead of looking outward. So this is the book that John Lennon took the lyrics of from Tomorrow Never Knows. This book, basically, as I say, back then when it was published. LSD was still yet to infiltrate its way into the countercultural movement. It was still largely unheard of to the mass mainstream population. If you'd have said, if you had have said to a regular Joe in the street in 1965, hey, what do you think of LSD? They would probably say, I don't know what you're talking about. What's LSD? So it wasn't a widely known drug. So here we have Timothy Leary with this manual. Basically, it's a manual guiding a would-be LSD user in it—it's uh, um, guiding them to uh, to take a trip without freaking out. Basically, it's a manual to guide them in a way so as not to have a bad trip. Okay, so this is a guidebook um, about where you should take the LSD or environment you should do it in, so you don't get paranoid and you don't have a bad trip. It's partly about that. John Lennon read this book, took words from it and placed them in this psychedelic sounding song, Tomorrow Never Knows, in August 1966. So still in August 1966, by and large to the mainstream population, certainly the, you know, the, 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 um, the broad spectrum of fans that the Beatles had, you know, the grandmothers, the, the dads, the uncles, the aunties, the toddlers, they wouldn't have known what LSD acid was in August 66, by and large, because it still hadn't, become a major drug on the scene, the youth culture scene. So here we have the Beatles in August 1966, singing almost word for word from passages in this book about a drug that their audience would never have heard of otherwise. So again, you could say, were the Beatles doing this deliberately in order to uh, to promote this drug? Um, 
I'll leave that to you. But some months later, Paul McCartney, I think it was in 1967. Again, I don't have the information in front of me, but he spoke in public about LSD and he was basically telling the interviewer, I think it was a magazine interviewer. He was telling the magazine interviewer, if it was a magazine, that he thought that everyone should take it, that it made you into God. So so this is so, you know, the, the, the transformation from these cute, lovable mop tops just three years earlier. These mainstream pop song making cute little boy, this cute little boy band to three, four years later into these like long haired LSD taking baby ripping people, you know. So, yeah, uh, there there is definitely a case for the Beatles willingly pushing LSD to a unsuspecting public. And it could be argued, uh, along with a couple of other ingredients that had the Beatles not along with the help of the mainstream press who'd started to push LSD in the mainstream press in, in the UK in June 66. If those those if the Beatles and the mainstream press hadn't have done this in 66, it could be argued that the, the British public would have been none the wiser. They wouldn't have known what LSD was. So you do you do have to think I, I do wonder, you know, were, were the Beatles taking part in this deliberately in order to push push this drug, this agenda, this change in society? um deliberately yeah for sure i think i think for me i'd say for certain it's such a huge transition and if you think about what they were trying to achieve um when we go to what just happened this last recent event with covid uh and what they achieved in months like they took us in just no it was weeks they took us from weeks from living our normal lives to being terrified staying at home wearing masks uh, and that is true control of the mass consciousness. Uh, but if we go back to, say, the, the 60s and 70s, I guess that was the really the first experiments in this. And they did it over a few years with the Beatles. And I think that kind of perversion of things where you've got a lot of people who think, no, no, this is these are wholesome guys. You know, you said the grandmas and the parents, but the young people, now they'll have been completely tuned into what those lyrics meant because that's how you are when you're younger. You're analyzing everything. These are your heroes and your heroes are telling you, oh, wow, there's this drug or your friend tells you at school, do you know what this song's about? Do you know what this book's about that this that he was quoting lyrics from? It's about this drug. And then there is also these, uh, and I don't have any proof of this, but there are theories that there were plants put in the audience that were saying, oh, you know, do you want to try this drug uh, and giving out LSD and that the CIA were doing this in the US as well. Now, I'm not sure, but if you go back to what they was doing a generation before uh, and later on when they was bringing in cocaine and flooding the uh, poor urban black neighborhoods with the drug, crack cocaine, should I say, uh, then, yeah, of course they would have been. You know, it's like there's already evidence they've done it in all these other areas. So does it surprise me if I found out they were giving it out at concerts? Not at all. Uh, and I do know that apparently Timothy Leary, who you mentioned, that they're, some of the early LSD tabs actually had his uh, face on it because he was so revered in that scene for being uh, this proponent of LSD. Now, I, I know that they tried to make him out as being kind of anti-establishment, uh, but I, like you, I'd be very suspicious of that. I think, no, he, he was probably arrested publicly to make it look that way. Uh, but I'm I'm aware, Matt, we've we've like been talking for well over an hour. So I'm gonna end part one now. Uh, and I'm just gonna nip to get a drink. And then we're sure. gonna come back. And I think the first thing that I wanted to ask you uh is probably about John Lennon, because we haven't even gone down that rabbit hole. Uh, and Yoko Ono has a very interesting family and past. So uh, if that's cool with you, Matt, we'll start that uh start part two with that question. Okay. 
Well, that was such an awesome first part with Matt, but really, we're just about to get started. This is where it really kicks off. Part two is my favorite part of this one. So if you enjoyed part one, you're going to love part two. Please come over to parallelmike.com to become a member if you want to listen to it. If not, thank you so much for listening to part one. And of course, like always, I will see you in the next one. What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly, expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Peace in our time. Peace in all time.